I'm Jonathan Bastian, this week on KCRW's Life Examined. From hunter-gatherers to agrarian societies, food has played a key role in our evolution, and controlling its production shapes who we are as a society. If you want to talk about addressing inequality in the United States today, you have to talk about addressing who's farming the land, who owns the land, who's farming the land, and what are their goals in farming the land. And then, what makes some foods literally irresistible? A Pulitzer-winning journalist explores just how addictive processed food has become. One of the things that's most powerful in dealing with the brain is the salt on the surface of the chip. The industry calls that the flavor burst. Um, And one of the hallmarks of addiction is speed. Drug researchers know that the faster a substance hits the brain, the more apt we are to lose control. The history, science, and ritual of food, all ahead on Life Examined. From the earliest of times, when hunter-gatherers roamed the earth, food has played an essential role. The more humans ate, the more our brains grew. And the more our brains grew, the more thoughtful and deliberative we became in how we found and grew our food. That need to eat has shaped the darker moments in our history as well, from slavery and colonialism to famines and genocides. But it has also fueled successes. We live longer and more productive lives. The topic of food is near and dear to Mark Bittman's heart. He wrote a food column for the New York Times for more than a decade. His latest book chronicles the history of our relationship to food. It's called Animal-Vegetable Junk, a history of food from sustainable to suicidal. Today, Bittman says, food continues to shape our destiny from public health to climate, especially here in America. Well, Mark Bittman, welcome to Life Examined. Nice to be back here, Jonathan. You know, there's a lot of books, and and I really like a lot of them, that try to tell the story of human civilization through through different lenses. I think of some of the popular ones, gun germs and steel, things like that. But I love that you use food as a frame to go back through time and talk about how humans develop. How did you think that that would be an important way for us to understand how far we've come as a human society? I mean... With all due respect to guns, germs, and steel, I mean, as individual items, and and with all due respect to Dr. Diamond, who's, you know, brilliant, why not food? It's the most important thing there is. Mm -hmm. I mean, you could argue about food versus oxygen, but obviously we're not here if it's not for food. So if food is the determinant of of how we use land, land is where we live, Uh, ownership of land became one of the most important things. And that's all about food. Labor began as agricultural labor. I mean, there's there's just, you know, I, I think this happened after years of saying, you can't fix society without fixing the food system. And you can't fix the food system without fixing society. And sort of talking about the links between food and everything else it just dawned on me that this has always been the case, that food sort of started it all rolling and it's never stopped being one of the most powerful influences. You start one of the early chapters with something called the food brain feedback loop. What is that? Well, it basically describes the process by which we came out of the trees. We started to eat a more diverse diet and that more diverse diet uh, I mean, no one really knows this, but the presumption is that by eating more and higher quality calories, our brains grew bigger. Mm. And as our brains grew bigger, we were capable of being more clever 
uh, and more thoughtful, we were able to find more food. We became better at finding food. And as we became better at finding food, our brains grew bigger still. And that that process continued for you know, a couple hundred thousand years, let's say, until we, we extincted or whatever, we outlasted the Neanderthals and we became the, the primary homo sapien species that we are. Mm -hmm. Can you expand on the idea of caloric intake and brain size? I'm not so sure it's so much the amount of calories as the quality of the calories so that when um, there were a, a number of changes that took place in our bodies relative to the bodies of our more ape-like ancestors. And so those animals spent a lot of time chewing and a lot of time converting green and woody substances into digestible foods that could then be made into amino acids and protein. When we came down from the trees, and we, especially when we started to hunt, um, we started to eat more directly foods that had higher, higher protein, that were higher protein sources. And so I think it, it's a lot about protein consumption that, that determined larger brain size or, or more acute thinking abilities. Um, and that just, that just continued and continued and continued over the years we eventually were able to hunt better. We were eventually able to cook. And that meant that we had even more food sources at our disposal because a lot of foods that appear to be edible are very, very hard to chew or very, very hard to digest unless they're cooked. So control of fire was a, a huge thing in determining the direction our diets took and, and our diets generally took, especially until the advent of agriculture, they generally took better and better directions. Agriculture made it possible for more humans to be alive on Earth. But measurably, again, according to archaeological records, there's evidence that hunter-gatherers had better diets, more diverse diets, and in fact were healthier than, than early agriculturalists. And some of the problems that came along with agriculture were increased infectious disease as a result of living in, in closer quarters, and especially living in close quarters with animals. Malnutrition, because although hunter-gatherers did not have a guaranteed food supply, what they did find was um, varied and good, whereas agriculturalists very soon started growing those crops and sometimes only that crop that grew well where they were. Mm. So if you eat the same food every day, and if you eat sometimes the same food for every meal, you risk malnourishment. You may get enough calories, but, but we still see examples today of people, societies where one food is so dominant that, that even people who get enough calories are not getting a, a sound diet. And, and, that, and then moving forward past, past early agriculturalists, agriculture, now we have a whole, a whole nother set of problems. But you know, there's no going back. I mean, not only is there never any going back, but as foragers, hunter-gatherers became agriculturalists, uh, there became fewer animals to hunt, especially um, near the towns, population grew and it big populations grew. Farmers wanted to have more children than non-farmers because um, 
They wanted more labor. So populations grew further. It became more and more difficult to hunt and gather. And then those skills were lost. So at a certain point, and it wasn't all that long ago, but it was, say, 1,500 years ago, 2,000 years ago, it wasn't, there are still some hunter-gatherers alive on the earth, but, but that population became less and less significant as the agricultural population began to dominate. Where does the story go from these kind of early agrarian societies and agriculture spreading around the globe? For you, what, what's kind of the next major chapter that, that explains where we've come as a species? I'll just go back to the the formation of agriculture and and its responsibility for forming civilizations for as little time as I sure. possibly can, which is which is to say that that as when there was agriculture, there started to become surplus. And when there was surplus, there started to become people whose jobs were not farmers. And right. until that time, there really wasn't anyone whose job didn't have something to do with food. But once there were surplus, you could have priests and you could have builders and you could have accountants and you could have scribes and you could have politicians and managers and, and traders um, with a D and and all the things that we now consider professions or, or jobs. Um, that's a big change. And, and the fact that you started to grow food and make laws and make civilization um, that started 10,000 years ago, and you could say maybe consolidated by 2,000 years ago. That was a, a big, big jump. The next thing that's especially of interest to North Americans, I think, is the 13th, 14th, 15th, 16th centuries. And the easiest way to explain this, I think, is to start by saying that it takes, takes more land uh, to feed people who are dependent on animal products than it does to feed people who are more oriented toward vegetarianism. So the higher populations of Asia are largely explained by the fact that um, there, were, there were more cultures dependent on, on plants in Asia than there were in Europe. Um, the technology was, was just as advanced. And in fact, the Chinese sailed to Africa, which is a much longer voyage, long before the Europeans sailed to North America. But in a way, there were the, the pressure of population, of trade, of capitalism, of the new economy of the, let's say, 15th and, and especially 16th centuries in Europe really forced the issue and forced Europeans to go exploring and looking for new lands, new lands for agriculture, for other reasons as well, but primarily, or at least very importantly, lands for agriculture. And you can only imagine the the amazement of Europeans when they landed, uh, when they started to explore North America and saw the size and the richness of this continent and the relatively small population um, of indigenous people here and, and sadly an indigenous people that were able to be conquered um, in order for the Europeans to take over. But that was a lot of that was about agriculture too. The Europeans bringing their agricultural systems here, their ways of land ownership here, their ways of land distribution, their willingness to steal land from other people and to kill if they had to do it. That was all the story of of the 15th and 16th centuries, and that and that continued, you know, as we know, it continues now. But 
But that was the foundation of of this country in particular. Let's jump ahead here a little bit. Where do we see the story taking us next, especially in the United States? I mean, I think the most significant thing, one of the defining things of the United States right now happened in the post-Civil War period. And I'm not saying there weren't other important periods, but starting in 1862, all the land west of the Appalachians was basically given away to white males and to and to railroad companies, um, which of course were run by white males also. But the, but the land that was given away in relatively small chunks, 160, 320, or 640 acres, was basically given away to those men who wanted to leave the East or wanted to leave Europe and become farmers. And that was an early determinant of wealth in the United States. Land ownership obviously is associated with with wealth. And the fact that land was stolen from indigenous people and given to mostly white men was a tremendous transfer of wealth and one that that affects the way we define wealth in the United States today. There was never, I mean, it goes without saying, there were never reparations for slavery for the millions of Africans who were brought here Um, against their will and enslaved. Um, There was some promises made to free men, ex-enslaved people, um, about giving them land. And Reconstruction had a lot of promise also about making this a more equal country. But those promises were were betrayed. And, And we went from then, 1860, till now, 150, 160 years later, without addressing the issue of who gets the land to farm. And what Mm. we've seen in that intervening time is the consolidation of that land that was given away by the federal government, consolidation of land that was owned by white men into largely into corporations that are owned by white men. And that, you know, if you want to talk about addressing inequality in the United States today, you have to talk about addressing Who's farming the land? Who owns the land? Who's farming the land? And what are their goals in farming the land? And that's, you know, now we're at the place where I can, I think I can say, you can see why I think food is such a determinant of what is happening in society. We haven't even gotten to the point of mentioning the public health issues that are, that it, that swirl around food or the fairness issues or the accessibility issues. We're still just talking about land and farming. And, and already we're talking about the determinants of what our country looks like right now. So even in that kind of earlier period in American history, the fact that the land was controlled by, by white men primarily w- kind of created this natural food segregation. And there were different ways that I, I suppose that food was distributed or, or how it was marketed. I mean, can, can you use that as more of a springboard to talk about some of these inequities? Farming was transformed from an activity where people were growing food for themselves, their neighbors, their regions, to an activity where people were growing food to sell, to ship and sell elsewhere. And that happened, that started to happen early on. I mean, the building of the Erie Canal and the first railroads and all of that made made this possible. But when you start to see farmland go from growing a variety of crops. You know, the biggest producer of apples and tomatoes in this country was once Iowa. Mm. And you'd be hard pressed to find 
more than what you'd call a garden devoted to apples or tomatoes in Iowa today. Everything is corn and soybeans and a little bit of wheat and a little bit of oats. And those are commodity crops. And commodity crops are what has been encouraged by, supported by, and even subsidized by the federal government since before World War I, but especially beginning in World War I. And those commodity crops are not really food for people. Those are food for industry. So the extreme example is growing corn for ethanol, but less extreme examples, but still egregious examples are growing food, growing corn to feed animals, which are then raised industrially, or even worse, in my opinion, growing food to turn into hyper-processed food, which barely qualifies as food and which in a discussion that we, we may not even get to is is poisoning and or making ill a large percentage of our population today. And of course, the percentage of population that is most susceptible to being made ill by marketing of junk food or people with less money. It is hard to narrow this stuff down without, you know, hammering through or, or walking through step by step how this stuff happened, the consolidation of these companies, the decisions to the decisions by the federal government to encourage agriculture as a profit center as opposed to a nutrition center. I mean, if I say to you, if I say to any reasonable person, what should be the goal of a food system, they're going to answer something like feed good food to as many people as possible while using as few resources as possible, something like that. Yeah. And instead, the goal of our food system is quite simply to make money for a few hundred owners of a few dozen corporations. I mean, largely four companies control the beef industry, four country companies control the pork industry, two or three companies control the chicken and I mean, control like more than 60 or 70 percent. I mean, that's those people are making decisions about what our food looks like today. One thing we didn't talk about was just was just sugar and the huge production and sale of processed sugar and the push of you know low, the low fat diet has produced huge health problems. Can you talk a little bit about that? The 20th century just saw the conversion of food into food products in a in a large way. A lot of the food that we a lot of the products that we think of as food were actually invented in the 20th in the 20th century. I'm not just talking about Twinkies, but frozen dinners and canned soups and, and a host of other things to the point where, by some estimates, 60% of our calories are now in the form of ultra-processed food. By ultra-processed food, I mean food you couldn't make yourself, food made from ingredients that are not found in anybody's kitchen, food that our grandmothers wouldn't recognize. So sugar is a big part of that for sure. And sugar is probably the biggest culprit in, um, in, in causing diet-related chronic disease, which is our country's biggest killer. And by the way, way bigger than COVID. But, but highly processed carbohydrates of all kinds are bad for us. And every year, more and more food products, food-like substances, whatever you want to call them, unidentifiable food-like objects, um, every year, there's more and more of that. And every year, our diabetes rates go up, our cancer rates go up, our food-related, our diet-related diseases go up. 1.5 to 1.7 million Americans die of diet-related chronic disease. And this is a National Institutes of Health number. 1.5 million or more Americans die of diet-related chronic disease every year. And we don't call that a crisis. 
we're for some reason we're willing to live with that. And and you know if I can have any impact on on that number, on the way we think about that number, and say we have a dietary crisis here whose foundation is really in agriculture, because we can only eat what we produce, and we do eat what we produce, and we have no control. We people have no control over what gets produced, processed, and sold. And so we have very little control over our diets. That's what has to change, and that is big stuff. That's not like shop at your farmer's market, although that's a good idea. That's like we need fundamental change in the way we think about the way we think about food. Well, Mark Pittman, we appreciate the time. Thanks for joining us on KCRW. It was uh, intense. Thanks for having me. <laughs> Mark Pittman is the author of Animal Vegetable Junk: A History of Food from Sustainable to Suicidal. Still to come, have food companies deliberately made food as addictive as possible? Join us on Life Examined after this short break. I'm Jonathan Bastian, back with Life Examined on KCRW. We just heard renowned food journalist and author Mark Bittman explain the role of food in shaping our evolution. But is our instinct to eat, and often overeat, being manipulated against us? Because, as we all know, there are certain foods that are almost impossible to put down, often to our detriment. The answer lies in the addictive nature of salt and sugar, and the intense and immediate pleasure they provide. Sugar acts on the brain 20 times faster than nicotine, and foods that are highly processed and sweetened are the most addictive. Following up on his 2013 book, Salt, Sugar, Fat, How the Food Giants Hooked Us, journalist and Pulitzer Prize-winning author Michael Moss dives into the science behind making foods addictive. His latest book is titled Hooked, Food, Free Will, and How the Food Giants Exploit Our Addictions. Michael Moss, welcome to Life Examined. Oh, thank you so much for having me. I wanted to start with with a quote in the book that really caught my attention, and maybe it'll help set the scene for us. You write, quote, For the first four million years of our existence, it was our addiction to food that enabled us to thrive as a species. It's only now, for the past 40 years, that being hooked on food is causing us so much harm. I, l- I love that quote, and I was wondering if you, could, if you could use that to kind of jump into some of the research you did and some of the findings you did. Yeah, and I love that quote too, because, I mean, look, if you, if you had said to me, if we had this conversation five years ago and somebody suggested that Twinkies, Oreos, or Hot Pockets could be as addictive as heroin, I would have thought, you know, that was like nutso. I mean, right. of course not. But I've come full circle and and in, in thinking that in many ways these food products are even more problematic than smoking and alcohol and drugs and and the the, the overarching reason for that is that we by nature are addicted to food as, as one of as one of my scientists said to me um you know we're because we're drawn to food not just to eat but to overeat and overeating used to be this really great thing it enabled us to put on some body fat and our brains to grow larger and us to get through hard times and have more babies. But what's happened in the past 50 years is that the food companies have changed the nature of our food to make overeating an everyday thing. And the way they're doing that is not just the stuff we can see on the labels, the salt, sugar, fat, but you know the tapping of our fundamental biology that draws us to food. Um, in making their products um, irresistible. Is there anything else you can say about 
uh, how our biology evolved to eat or ways in which we would be exploited in the future? I mean, how did, how did oh, we Oh, absolutely. Grow? Yeah. So number one, we love food that's inexpensive, right? Um, you go back to, you know, hunter-gatherer days, it make a, made a lot more sense for us to, um, instead of running down an Impala for dinner, to grab that aardvark that's sitting there. Because right. cost, in that sense, is energy expenditure, and the goal is to expend as little energy as possible to preserve that. So what do the food companies do? They have these chemical laboratories working for them that mix and match and reformulate the ingredients and products with one overarching goal, which is to, you know, knock 10 cents off the cost of a box of of breakfast uh, pastries, um, toaster pastries. Um, and knowing that we'll get excited by that less expensive product. We love variety in food. It's one of the reasons why we were able to spread around the globe and, and, you know, and like a variety of foods. Some people even love whale blubber because it's what there is to eat, right? Mm -hmm. And so we're very adaptable in that sense. Well, walk into the grocery store and variety there is the reason why there's 200 brands of sugary starch in the cereal right. aisle. The companies know that we get excited about that. And maybe the, maybe the biggest one is calories, right? I mean, we evolved to love calories. We have sensors in the gut, possibly in the mouth, that tell us how many calories there are in the food we're eating and drinking. Um, the more calories we get, the more excited the brain gets. And so what did the industry do? They created these densely calorically packed products and snacks, right? Mm. Um, I was looking at a bag of Fritos the other day. It wasn't terribly big. I could eat the whole thing in one sitting. 1,440 calories in the one bag. And that's very characteristic of these products we're talking about here, packed with calories in a way that fundamentally gets us excited and drawn toward them, maybe even more powerfully than, than salt, sugar, fat, which I, I used to focus on. That's interesting. You also talk about a, there's this example of M&Ms we could use, right? Which is, say you opened up a bag of M&Ms and they were all brown, that would be less interesting than the, all these different colors that arrive, which speaks to yeah. this question of diversity. We think that they're all different and unique when, of course, they're, they're the exact same thing. Absolutely. And, and, and you know, this, this sort of lessons learned from other addiction is really fascinating. At one point, I had a, a wonder kid from Silicon Valley visit me and he had a copy of the, the previous book, Salt, Sugar, Fat. And he'd, he had like underlined almost every other sentence in the book. And I was kind of startled. And he says, well, you know, I'm looking for ways that I can help people get unaddicted to their smartphones. Um, mm. And one of the ways that we're working on and realizing is that color is a huge attraction. And so if you toggle your smartphone to reduce the to eliminate the color and go into black and white mode, you're going to find it's a lot easier to resist picking up that phone and fiddling with it. Well, the same thing is true with food, too. You take those M&Ms and you put them in an opaque jar, right, that doesn't have any color on the outside. And somehow, if you could even eliminate the color of the M&Ms, you're going to get a lot. You're going to have much more ability to sort of control, control your ability to say, no, I've had enough of these. Well, let's talk a little bit about the science of addiction, which, which is obviously a really big component of this book. How do you define addiction? And then how do we see it play out in all of the foods that, that are served up to us in the grocery aisles or fast food? So, so that was one of my stumbling blocks in starting out because the food industry said to me, look, how can you call our products addictive when only some people lose control? Mm -hmm. um, and also, 
how do you call, you know, hot pockets addictive? And where's the harsh chemical that you find in right. cigarettes or alcohol or tobacco or, or, or drugs? And so I thought, okay, I, I better, I've got to do some work here. And so, what, you know, I started spending time with scientists who used to study drug addiction. And then they switched over to studying food and began to see some, you know, really compelling evidence that in some ways food is even more problematic. But one of the big... One of the big moments for me was when one of the scientists said to me, hey, Michael, you may not remember, but the tobacco industry vehemently denied that smoking was addictive for decades. Right. Um, and along the way, they even compared cigarettes to Twinkies in terms of their, pro you know, being problematic for us. Um, and then they turned on a dime in the year 2000 when suddenly Philip Morris was the first and said, okay, you got us. Smoking is totally addictive. You're right. You know, it's not a matter of free will for many people. And that same year in a legal proceeding, I found the CEO was asked, um, so, sir, what's your definition of addiction? And he goes, addiction is a repetitive behavior that some people find difficult to quit. Hmm. And that was so meaningful for me because at the time, Philip Morris was also the single largest manufacturer of processed food in North America because it owned the old company General Foods and all its giant brands in the grocery store. It owned Kraft. And it also had just purchased Nabisco, which makes Oreo cookies. Hmm. And a while later, I sat down with the former general counsel of Philip Morris. Steve Parrish is his name, and we were talking about his smoking habits. And he said, look, I was one of those people who could smoke one cigarette a day, put the pack away, and not ever think about it. Um, but I couldn't go near a bag of our Oreos for fear of opening uh. it up and eating half of the bag. I would lose control. And again, this is like this delicious moment as a journalist because you have – key powerful insiders telling you that they are aware of of the of the, the the strength that their products have to eliminate our free will and decision making and they're fully aware of that and also they fully understand sort of what addiction is and how to define it and the fact that yeah not everybody loses control over these products but that still doesn't mean that they're not addictive if you could walk us through what happens, let's say, when you eat a delicious uh, potato chip, you pick your favorite one versus what happens when you um, take a drag from a cigarette, because they both do something to the brain and it happens very quickly. But, but there is a difference and a surprising one here. Yeah, so I happen to have a fondness for a brand called Uglies these days. Which okay. <laughs> I, th I think they're made with like deformed potatoes. And, I, you know, there's a certain like a little emotional thing going on there, feeling sorry for the potato. But also I should say, look, I'm one of the incredibly lucky people who can open a bag of potato chips and put their hand in, have a handful put the bag away. <clears throat> what can I say? I apologize to people who <laughs> can't do yeah. that. However... I do love them. And speaking to these scientists who invented potato chips, you know, would cause me to have cravings, right. appreciating sort of everything that goes into it. Um, and so we can talk about the noise that potato chips make. They discovered that the more crunch potato chips have, the more we will eat. Mm. We can talk about the fact that potato chips, you know, actually have a lot of sugar in them in the form of sort of very refined potato starch that when it hits the gut starts acting much like, you know, table sugar will. But but I think I think for your question though, one of the one of the things that's most 
powerful in dealing with the brain is the salt on the surface of the chip. The industry calls that the flavor burst. Um, and one of the hallmarks of addiction is speed. Drug researchers know that the faster a substance hits the brain, the more apt we are to lose control over our willpower, free will, and to act impulsively, compulsively. And it turns out there's nothing faster um, than food in the way it hits the brain. And here's here's what happens. Um, so you 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 put the potato chip in your mouth and your tongue, salt being on the surface, touches the taste buds. The taste buds don't send the salt to the brain, <clears throat> um, which we'll get to in a second because it's different with smoking and 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 um, and alcohol and drugs. They'll send a signal to the brain, right, through the taste bud system, through a neurological system, um, and. Some scientists did a really interesting study. They did this for sugar as well as salt, where they put sugar or salt on the tongue, asked people to push a button when they tasted the salt or the sugar. And they were pushing that button in less than one second because mm. of sort of the, the system we have in place to get us to like sugar and salt, sort of biologically. Um, and what's really important, though, is to realize that smoking, cigarette smoke, can take as long as 10 seconds to fully activate the brain compared to eight-tenths of a second for sugar or salt. Um, you know, alcohol and drugs are kind of somewhere in between. And so, you know, with that, I sort of started looking at fast food and fast groceries, as I call them now, kind of in a, with a whole new understanding because the industry sort of speed is everything when it comes to these products, not just the manufacturing process or the convenience and the packaging that lets us get inside and get the food out almost instantaneously, but the speed with which we eat them mindlessly, snacking became this fourth meal in America on average. We're now getting something like 550 calories a day, a quarter of all the calories we get from snack foods that we're eating, which by definition are fast and hitting the brain fast. That's amazing. And, and what I take from this is that it makes food essentially maybe the most addictive substance out there. I mean, if it's working faster than tobacco, if it's working faster than a lot of the other drugs. Well, in the sense of that, in the sense that it's everywhere and it's cheap and it's legal. Right. You don't have any, there's no, there's no worry on your part about going to jail if you go down to the convenience store and buy this stuff, like, like the worry that you have. There's no inhibition in, in um, food. And also in the sense, and this is one of the more mind-blowing things for me, is that you know, we by nature were drawn to overeat for much of our existence, putting on body fat was a really good thing. In fact, we became really fat creatures in the, in the mammal world that enabled our brains to grow and get mm -hmm. through hard times and enable us to have more babies, right? Well, in this current food environment where overeating is now an everyday thing, body fat turns against us and I had no idea but scientists are discovering that body fat is an organ that thinks, strategizes, communicates with other organs in the body. And when you try to, and its sole mission in life is to keep you from messing around with it. So if you go on a diet to lose weight, your body fat is sending signals to the brain telling it to make you hungry. <clears throat> it's also slowing down your resting metabolism. That's the amount of energy you, you burn just sitting around or even sort of sleeping in order to preserve itself. And even more, as you put on more body fat, 
Your sensitivity to advertising increases. Psychologists calls it cues, and they've put people in brain scans over time to measure their sensitivity to, to looking at food, and it goes up as you put on more body fat. So, you know, your worst enemy is kind of right there. Right. And one thing I think that, that has come out about addiction is that not all of us are created equal in terms of becoming addicted to anything. And, and another guest we had on the show was a geneticist who talked about uh, specifically body fat is something that some of us have more of and we might be more predisposed to it. So I just wonder for you, when you think about this subject, uh, do genetics play a role in whether or not we're going to get addicted to this stuff and, and how it's going to impact our body? Yeah, I, I, I think they do play a role. Um, Maybe not as much as we used to think, and mm -hmm. I've kind of forgotten what the percentages are, but people at Nestle who have tremendous amounts of research money were explaining to me that kind of the, the part of overeating on our part that's attributable to, to genetics is, I don't know, it's something less than 10%. Um, um, and I, I may have that number wrong, so, so don't hold me to it. But, but epigenetics is another sort of aspect, and that's sort of how... Our, our RNA, DNA sort of, um, you know, changes even very quickly, even from one generation to to the other right. and sort of how genes are expressed and dealt with. And you probably know more about um, epigenetics than me. One of the more curious things that I did in Reporting Hooked is I went to France where some researchers were focused on people um, who are known as being constitutionally thin, they can eat as much food as they possibly want and can cram in their mouths and never get fat. And for them, never gain weight. And mm. for them, much less gain fat. For them, it's a problem because they're quite painfully thin. And um, Nestle, in fact, spotted that research and has been funding some of it, um, you know, in hopes of finding some way to tweak our genes that would make us more vulnerable to, to ultra processed foods. So genetics may still end up playing uh, a curious role down the road. Well, I love that you use the word free will in your book, and it raised a bunch of questions for me. After everything we've talked about, the incredible science that's gone into the food, into the nature of addiction, is there this sense that we are ultimately powerless to some of this type of food? Yeah, I, th I, I think that's a lesson from the drug world, too, if you're trying to figure out sort of how to deal with some of these products. And it kind of in a very practical sense, I mean, if you're... If you know, if, if if you're a person who gets a, a craving for cookies at three in the afternoon, um, that craving comes on so fast and hard. Um, and I love these scientists who divide the brain into the go brain, which is there to get us to do things fundamentally that's good for the good for the future of mankind, womankind to um, you know flee from danger or eat. Um, and then there's the stop brain where the executive function is the willpower, the free will. It's basically is there to say, hey, wait a minute, Michael, I think you're overdoing this. Do you right. really want to be doing this? And, 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 and so you get in these situations with cravings where they overpower the go brain. So the stop brain doesn't have time to catch up and put its foot on, on, the, um, on the brake. And so 
So, yeah, I think free will is totally missing in that equation. And one of the lessons from the drug world is that kind of no matter what your strategy is for dealing with that 3 p.m. craving for cookies, whether it's to stand up and stretch or call a friend or have something better to eat like a handful of nuts, you pretty much need to be doing that at like 255 Hmm. before the three o'clock craving comes on when you still have free will and an ability to sort of decide for yourself you still have an upper edge and 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 your upper hand and your your stop brain is still active i wonder if there's any other tips you might give us or leave us with um because a lot of us uh, deal with this this issue throughout the day of these intense cravings. I know, I know as journalists, we often like to think, you know, knowledge is power. We can talk about it, get it out there. But I wonder if there's anything else you've learned also maybe from the addiction world that you could apply to this stuff. Yeah. So, you know, for, for the, for the real, well, obviously if you have, if you have eating disorders, binge eatings, you're getting help from a doctor because that is just so hard to deal with. If you're lower down on the spectrum of addiction, one of the things that occurred to me recently, and, and that goes all the way down to, to so many of us just being troubled by our overdependence on processed food and kind of the slow creep of weight gain or just kind of missing the love and the ritual of family meals with, you know, you know, dinner made from scratch. But so one of the things that struck me is that so many things I've been writing about that the industry does and uses, it didn't invent that stole them from us. There's nothing wrong with salt, sugar, fat. There's nothing wrong with convenience and variety. We had those things before the food giants came along. And so I'm starting to think of ways that we can turn the tables on the companies and, and you know, reclaim what they took from us. Um, and so just a tiny example in, in our house where we're trying to drink less sugary, you know, drinks because uh, I have two boys and um We've been really successful in switching over to plain seltzer because, and you'll love this because the the science is kind of murky, but there's something about effervescence that gets the brain excited almost as much as sugar, which is weird because because the bubbles have a little bite to them, right? There's a little bit of pain when you drink seltzer. Um, But it turns out in terms of our neurology, there's a fine line between pleasure and pain. And so my kids have been able to switch to plain seltzer. But here's the really interesting thing, which is that before there was sugary seltzer, uh, sugary soda, there was plain seltzer, right? There's a town in Germany called seltzer. People were connoisseurs. They had arguments over what plain seltzer was the best, right? And so I love this idea of taking back what they stole from us and using that to our advantage. And you can kind of go across the whole spectrum and think of ways to reclaim convenience and variety and even the language of food they've taken from us for their marketing campaigns. And we can reclaim those uh, for ourselves. Well, Michael Moss is the author of Hooked, Food, Free Will, and How the Food Giants Exploit Our Addictions. It's been a really interesting conversation. Uh, Thanks for the time. We appreciate it. Thanks for having me. Well, after hearing so much about the sinister nature of food corporations and how addicted we've become to certain foods, we thought we'd end this show by hearing about some simple ways to improve our everyday eating habits. Busy lives have left many of us grabbing food on the go and mindlessly eating at our desks or in front of the TV. Would food actually taste better if we slowed down? Lynn Rossi is a psychologist and the author of Savor Every Bite, Mindful Ways to Eat, Love Your Body, and Live with Joy. 
Her message is that mindful eating and simple rituals can help us reestablish a loving relationship with our food and ourselves. Lynn Rossi, welcome to Life Examined. Yes, thanks for having me. It's my pleasure. Well, so far, we've heard about the the really complex history humans have with food. We've heard about addictions with food, and and we're hoping that you can brighten the picture a little bit here for us and and talk about how we can reclaim a a healthier relationship to food. I, I know you come at this from a mindfulness approach, so maybe you can tell us a little bit about that and and how we can begin to rethink um, this uh, again this 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 relationship with how we eat. Yeah, I'd be happy to. I've been working in the field of mindfulness for many years and then also in the field of mindful eating. And mindfulness is this skill that we can all learn, uh, which helps us to be present for our bodies, present for our food, and present really for the whole aspect of eating, um, which includes our emotions around food, It includes our thoughts around food. It includes our memories about food. So it's very complex. As I'm sure your earlier discussions uh, showed, we have a lot of complexity when it comes to our relationship with food and our bodies. Yeah, it, it's interesting. I mean, we we do we hear a lot about the mindfulness movement, whether it's through you know yoga or meditation, and I'm glad you talked about the complexity of it in food, um, because maybe it's more than just taking a breath before we eat, but there's a lot more tied into this, isn't there? Yes, because you bring your whole being to the dinner table. I mean, if you even sit at the dinner table, <laughs> which right. you know a lot of people don't anymore when they eat, but wherever you go to sit down to eat, um, you're bringing your day with you. You know, were you stressed during the day? Uh, you're bringing, you know, all of the things that happened uh, to you up until that point to that meal. And unless you really stop and take a breath and consider why am I even reaching for food, you could be reaching for food for a lot of different reasons. You could be reaching for food because you're physically hungry, which is great, but you could also be reaching for food for some kind of comfort. You could be reaching for food because you're stressed, because you're bored. Um, Just because food is there, you know, you might be reaching for it. So just taking a pause with, you know, this mindful pause and taking a breath to activate that parasympathetic nervous system, which is your rest and digest response, you're really taking that moment to consider what really is going on right now. Yeah. And one thing we heard about on this program is just our tendency, one that's built into our biology to overeat and an addiction that can come along with it. And what you're saying is that that needs to be present in our minds. That needs to be considered before we just plow into a meal. Right. And so when we do stop and consider, we take that breath. I mean, mindfulness helps us to increase our awareness right? And we're aware of all of the emotions that are present, all of the thoughts, all of the smells, the, you know, the potential taste. Um, And we can begin to see through mindfulness what our habitual patterns are. So one of the things I help people to recognize are, what are my thought patterns? I might be um, restricting with food. And then when I don't restrict, then I'm overdoing it with food. And so there's that well-known binge and restrict cycle that people get into. And so just by raising that to their awareness and saying, you don't have to do that anymore. You can really have whatever you want. 
if you just kind of pay attention to what it is and how it tastes and how much that you want, everything is available to you. And then you can begin to make choices based on what does it taste like? What does it feel like in the body? How does my body react to it? Is this food I really want? Or is something else, um, is there something else that would be more um, pleasing for me? Why do you think we've separated ourselves so much from, from the action of eating and we've turned it into something that, that is uh, very different than what you're describing? Well, I think first of all, we're all just a little too busy. <laughs> So, you know, one of the things I think is really important, and I have a difficult time doing it as well, is to slow down, right? Just taking the time to slow down, and it can only take moments, just slowing down a moment or two to consider our actions, to really taste our food, um, is life-changing. I mean, literally life-changing to have people stop and they will, when I have people stop and taste something mindfully, it's like they're tasting it for the first time. And people say, I've eaten this my whole life, but I had never really tasted it before. I mean, it's, it's incredible. I think it's just really profound that we eat yeah. and we're not present for it because we're doing other things. We're multitasking. We're moving too fast. Eating is just something that we do along with reading or working on the computer or watching TV. Yeah, I know you've you do this really interesting exercise with people where you actually have them mindfully eat something that's very high quality and nutritious versus something that we we think we might like, which is more processed food. And when you really slow down and try the two of them in that in that slower mindset, people can really taste the difference and it can change opinions. Yes, and sometimes the processed food they still like it. You know, yeah. it's not like they're not going to like it and not all processed food is bad. You know, mm -hmm. I think I, we have to be careful about putting food into good and bad categories um, mm -hmm. because there's there's good and bad aspects to processed food. But it's really hard to compare that to the same kind of food that's fresh and whole and in season. You know, <laughs> it's just going to have quite a bit better taste. And the, the comments that I get are just like one bite of something that's, really more fresh and unprocessed is so much more satisfying because it takes more time to eat it. It kind of coats all of the taste buds in a different way and it creates this explosion of flavor and you're like, wow, I had an experience. And when you've had an experience with food, you don't need a lot more of it. Talk about location. Does that make a difference? And by that, I mean, do we need to be seated at a nice table uh, with a comfortable set of surroundings? Or, you know, can you be at, a, at a, a desk at work surrounded by your laptop on your phone and papers? Does that kind of stuff matter? Absolutely, it matters. And to the degree that you can, from time to time, I say like at least once a week, sit at the dinner table you know, have a meal that you share with somebody if that's available to you or even by yourself where you're not doing anything else but eating, right? So having those experience where you just eat can be actually very challenging for people, but also very revealing because what it reveals, it's almost like sitting in meditation, right? It's not going to be comfortable necessarily because what you're going to discover when you sit with the, the food and no other distractions 
is yourself. So you're going to meet yourself at the dinner table and you're going to have the food and you're going to begin to discover really what's going on that's maybe keeping you from enjoying sitting down and eating and be able to work that with that in a compassionate, kind way. You have to bring a lot of compassion to yourself when you start mindful eating because you're going to begin to discover all the ways that you keep yourself from enjoying the food. There's so much diet mentality that we have in our culture that has destroyed our relationship with food. And so we have to start to meet those voices in our head and welcome them, but not let them have control. Lynn Rossi is a psychologist and author of Savor Every Bite, Mindful Ways to Eat, Love Your Body, and Live with Joy. Lynn, thanks for joining us. You're very welcome. Thanks so much for having me. Well, that's all for today. The producer of Life Examined is Andrea Brody. You can listen to this and other episodes on your favorite podcasting app. And while you're there, leave us a review. Tell us what you think. To learn more about our guests and this topic, check out our webpage. That's kcrw.com slash lifeexamined. I'm Jonathan Bastian. Thanks again for joining us. We'll see you next week.